So you can keep open before you this evening, Revelation 14, verses 6 to 13, as we consider together the good news of God's judgment. The good news of God's judgment. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the full and complete gospel of Jesus Christ, is one that will offend everyone in some way, to some degree. Our particular culture today, the UK and Ireland in 2022, a secular culture, is perhaps most offended by the claim that we are all sinners, that our sin makes our sinless God angry, and that God will therefore judge sin and sinners in hell for all eternity. That more than perhaps anything else offends the culture in which we live. But if you were to preach turning the other cheek or forgiveness of enemies in other cultures in the world today, they would be offended. Uh, parts of the Middle East or Asia where there is still a very strong culture of shame and honour. Uh, if you were to preach love for your enemy or forgiveness of those who have sinned against you, uh, those cultures, some people in those cultures would find those things highly offensive. Point is, friends, the gospel offends everybody everywhere in different ways. And you would expect that of a gospel that doesn't belong to any one particular culture, but transcends culture and is to be preached to all people everywhere. That being said, we focus this evening on the one aspect of the gospel that is most likely to be watered down or flat out rejected in our culture, and that is the, the, the doctrine of the judgment of God. And such is the opposition of our culture to this doctrine that large chunks of the visible church today are simply ignoring it or rejecting it. Uh, Daniel Aiken, in his commentary on Revelation, he gives the example of several churches uh, using revised lyrics for the popular Christian song, In Christ Alone. Uh, not uh, an issue we have, um, given that we're exclusive psalmists, but nonetheless, it's an interesting example. The original lyrics of the song include the words, When on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God was satisfied. And apparently some Christians now sing instead, When on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, of course, both are true, but it's not that we should choose between one or the other, and we certainly shouldn't be celebrating one and be ashamed of the other. But an increasing number of Christians are ashamed and embarrassed about the doctrine of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. We shouldn't be. The wrath of God, friends, the judgment of God is part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if God is not holy enough and powerful enough to bring final judgment upon all the evil and sin and wickedness of this world, then no one is. And the unsolved murders will remain unsolved. And the unanswered questions will remain unanswered. And we will never know peace. And the dark swirl of chaos that this world is will remain a dark swirl of chaos forever. That's not the case because our holy God is going to bring final judgment. 
Sometimes on the news you will see families, perhaps of, of a murder victim, step out of a courtroom, walk up to the microphones and announce today is a good day for justice. It is a day of good news for those who wonder whether they will ever get vindication for their loved ones. We welcome the verdict of the judge in this case. We can finally have peace. You'll hear people say those sorts of things sometimes. And this passage before us this evening, friends, is telling us that one day, that's exactly what we, the people of God, the followers of the Lamb, are going to say. We are someday going to say, today is a good day for justice. We welcome the verdict of the judge. We can finally have peace. The passage before us this evening tells us via the announcements of three angels what will happen right before the end of the world and what will happen after the end of the world to all those who have refused the grace of God in Jesus Christ and who die in their sins or who come to the final judgment still in their sins. I want to see first of all this evening that the final judgment will bring deserved worship for God. The final judgment will bring deserved worship for God. Look at the announcement of the first angel, Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. This is the fifth of seven signs that we're working our way through in these chapters. Again, another cycle of sevens. And in this fifth of the seven signs is these three angels that John sees. And notice this first angel is flying directly overhead. (coughs) Or some of your translations might have mid-flight or the midpoint of the sky. In other words, this angel, friends, is clearly seen as well as clearly heard. And this is a picture for us of the gospel being clearly proclaimed to all people in all the earth. This is what Jesus said would happen. Matthew 24, 14. That this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. And that's what the angel represents here. It may be picture language describing uh, the gospel simply being preached by, by, by us, by the church, as is already happening. It may be that there literally is an angel who will announce throughout all the earth that the end has come. But one way or another, that's what this picture represents. Notice also verse 6 describes his message as the eternal gospel. That is an unchanging gospel, friends. This is the same gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed, which was preached even to Adam and Eve in the garden, preached to Abraham, preached to David, the promise of a saviour coming for God's people. But along with that promise of salvation, friends, there was also always the message Always the message of God's wrath and judgment on the sins of the world. And we cannot split the two apart. And that is what people do in our culture. Either inside or outside the church. We take all the verses that talk about God as love. And people are relegating or ignoring the verses that speak of God's wrath. We are not to choose between the two. And of course we can't read the Old Testament prophets and miss this promise of judgment. Nor can we indeed preach through the, nor can we read through the preaching of Jesus and miss the promise of judgment. 
And in fact, the, the weight of our text here this evening, verses 6 to 7, it's, it's saying that it is the wrath of God, it is the judgment that is being emphasized by this angel who is preaching the gospel. It says that he preaches here uh, to all who dwell on the earth, verse 6. And throughout Revelation, that is a description of those who are outside of Christ. Those who are followers of the beast rather than followers of the lamb. It's being emphasized to us here, friends, that this angel is preaching right before the final judgment. Look at verse 7. He says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth. So notice, friends, the angel is giving those who dwell on the earth a command. This is not optional. We're we're being told here about a point in the future when people will no longer be able to ignore or reject or walk away from God, spiritually speaking. G.K. Beale in his commentary says this will be a coerced acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. In other words, it will come to the point where whether people want to or not, whether they're doing so out of faith and repentance or not, they will acknowledge and they will worship the God who made the heavens and the earth. Coerced acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Eventually, Bill goes on, he says, all mankind will be forced to acknowledge the reality of God's imminent judgment. The unrepentant who do not give God glory will be made to do so will be made to do so at the last day. The the angel actually gives three commands here. He says, fear, give God glory and worship. Fear, give God glory and worship. Uh, And the three are interrelated, but they they bring out different uh, strands, uh, different, uh, different points of emphasis. The word fear means to have a reverence for or a, a deep respect for someone or something to the point where you think through every action you take in their presence. Your respect and devotion for them are such that you do not want to get things wrong when you're with them or when you see them. This would have been the attitude of our local and national politicians a few weeks ago when they had the opportunity to meet King Charles III in Hillsborough. And shake his hand and maybe speak a few words to him. They would have thought through everything from what they wore to where they were going to stand to what they might say to him for fear of getting it wrong. To an infinitely greater degree, friends, that will be the posture of all people on the day of judgment. The angel also commands all who dwell on the earth to give God glory. The Old Testament word for glory has to do with weightiness, this sense of, uh, we talk sometimes about someone having a presence that when they walk into a room, you just sense the atmosphere changes in the room. Uh, the New Testament word for glory has the idea of your, your opinion of someone or something. And the word worship comes from the word worthy. Again, who or what do we deem worthy of our time, our care, our effort, even our money? As we saw this morning in the covenant commitments that the people made in Nehemiah 10. And so friends, if these things are in your life already, 
If you fear God, you you consider him more weighty, of more importance than anyone or anything else. If you believe him more worthy of your worship and your time and your effort than anyone or anything else, then you belong to Jesus Christ and you are already gladly and willingly worshipping your God through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't always worship him as wholeheartedly as we should. But if there is fear of God in our lives, if his word and his commandments and his covenant promises are what matter most to us, then by grace you have been saved. Because these things play no part in the lives of those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says of them, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That care and concern we have not to get it wrong, not to sin against God, it's, it's entirely absent in the unbeliever. A few weeks ago, King Charles III made another visit, this time to York. And whilst he got another warm welcome from most people, he and his wife had several eggs thrown at them by a student from York University. That student, you see, has no fear of the king. He acted though as though the king was not someone to be respected or submitted to. And that is the, the proud, arrogant, rebellious attitude, friends, of every human heart towards God. The worship of self, the idolatry of possessions, the obsession with sexual immorality and so much more that we see today, friends, is it's as the Puritan Stephen Charnock put it, a pretending that God is not A pretending that God is not. God does not get today the worship that he deserves. But Revelation 14 is telling us that at the end, at the final judgment, God will get the worship that he deserves. Even if he is not loved by all, even if that worship does not come from the hearts of repentant sinners, It will come. He will be acknowledged by all for the holy, righteous, creator God that he is. And so what about you, dear friend, this evening, here in the building or listening in from elsewhere? Will you on that day be acknowledging God through gritted teeth or with wholehearted rejoicing? Will the last day just be Like many other days in your life when you gladly worship God for what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Does he get reverence and worship from you or does he see a man or a woman or a boy or a girl pretending each day that God doesn't see at all? Now is the day of salvation. Repent and, and today gladly bow the knee before him or you will be forced to bow the knee at the end. And that will only be the beginning. Because as we consider secondly today, the final judgment will bring eternal torment for God's enemies. Eternal torment for God's enemies. Look at the announcement of the second angel in verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
Now we're going to be thinking a lot more about Babylon later in Revelation, particularly in chapter 17 and 18. But all we need to know for now is that Babylon represents the, the world at war with God. Babylon is symbolic of all the political power, all the cultural power, all the religious power that is anti-Christ, that is of the beast that we were thinking of in chapter 13. But what does the angel announce? Babylon has fallen. In fact, it's repeated twice that Babylon has fallen. Uh, there's no such thing as an exclamation mark in the Greek language. And so when something's emphasized or drawn attention to, it's repeated fallen, fallen. It's done. Babylon is finished at the return of Christ and at the final judgment. The wrath of God has come upon Babylon. And then in verse 9, the third angel makes his announcement. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So remember now what we saw in chapter 13. We saw that Satan's beast will, will put his mark upon all unbelievers during the last days. And we saw how difficult the beast will make life for the followers of the Lamb. Chapter 13 verse 7 even said that the beast will conquer the saints. Put them to death. Life will at times be almost unbearable for the followers of the Lamb. Because of those who have the mark of the beast. And are just resigned to following the beast. And under the deception of the beast. And it will seem for much of that time that you'd be better off having the mark of the beast. That you'd be better off worshipping the beast because the beast is powerful and the beast is destroying all in its path. But we need to keep that eternal perspective, friends, because now we're told when God's judgment comes, this third angel tells us that those who have had the mark of the beast, those who have drunk from the cup of Babylon, will have to drink another cup. They will have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. And this idea that God's wrath is in a cup and is to be poured out upon his enemies, that's, it's a picture that we find all through the Bible. Psalm 75, verse 8, for example. Just listen to these words. We'll be singing them later. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And here now is the fulfillment of that prophecy. At the final judgment, the drinkers of Babylon's cup will have to drink from God's cup. A cup of wrath poured full strength on sinners, on unrepentant sinners. And by the way, this is how we know that the mark of the beast is spiritual. It's not something physical. It's not something, it's not some of the, the stranger ideas that people come out with today about what this mark will look like. It's a spiritual mark. And the reason we know that is because all who have it are going to be, are, are going to have God's wrath poured upon them at the judgment. Who's going to have God's wrath poured upon them at the judgment? All unbelievers. Therefore, all unbelievers have the spiritual mark of the beast, whether they realize it or not. Look at verse 10. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels 
and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image. These verses, friends, are very important for us when it comes to our understanding of the doctrine of hell. Because, of course, that's what these verses are describing. They're describing the experience of those who will be in hell. There are a couple of alternative suggestions that have been made by professing Christians, teachers and preachers, concerning what will happen to unbelievers when they die. The first is the suggestion of universalism. Universalism. And universalism is the belief that eventually, one way or another, pretty much everyone will go to heaven. There may be some kind of intermediate period of suffering, but it won't last forever. It won't be that bad. And a loving God will see everyone in the end saved one way or another. Second suggestion about the fate of unbelievers is that of what's called annihilationism, which is simply the belief that unbelievers won't go to heaven They won't have their sins forgiven, but nor will they suffer forever. Instead, they will simply be annihilated. In other words, at some point, God will simply end their existence altogether, physically and spiritually. They will not exist anymore, and so they will not suffer anymore. Well, the verses we've just read in Revelation 14, as well as the clear teaching of Jesus, the Old Testament and the Apostles, Friends, it all shows us that both universalism and annihilationism are wrong. They're simply not true. Notice in verse 10, the word tormented. And again in verse 11, the smoke of their torment. The word torment means torture, to cause to suffer. So when the final judgment comes and God's wrath is poured upon unbelievers... It will not cause them to cease to exist. It will cause them to be tormented, tortured, to suffer. And verse 11 tells us for how long they will suffer. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. So this is not a temporary torment, friends. This is eternal, conscious, never-ending torment from which there is no escape, contrary to the claims of universalism or annihilationism. And to those who would say, that's not very loving, didn't Jesus say, do not judge? Well, don't try to play Jesus off against Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 48, Jesus says, In hell, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus taught what Revelation also teaches. Hell is an eternal, conscious, never-ending torment for those who go there. That's why Jesus, like Revelation, like the rest of the Bible, constantly described hell as a fire. That's picture language, friends. I could be wrong. I don't particularly imagine that there will be literal fire in hell. It's a picture for us to describe torturous pain. You ask, well, what will be so torturous about hell? Well, amongst other things, 
It will be the fact that those who are there know they could have escaped. And for those who have particularly had many, many opportunities to escape, the more opportunities they have had, the more torturous hell will be. Sermons they heard will come back to haunt them. Decisions they made about God and church and the Bible will play over and over and over in their minds. The bitterness and regret of having hardened their hearts and stopped their ears and refused to listen will leave them staggering around as the cup of God's wrath is poured upon them, symbolically speaking. Notice verse 10 says that the torment of those who follow the beast will go up forever in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hell is not somewhere that God is not present. Some of you may have heard that mistaken suggestion and, and, and sometimes perhaps made by people who, who uh, are well-intended well and perhaps do grasp something of hell. But it's not that some people suggest that what makes hell hell is that God isn't there. It's not true. What makes hell hell is that God is only present there in wrath and in anger rather than in grace and mercy. But you don't have to have the cup of his wrath poured out full strength upon you. Someone else has had that cup poured upon them so that sinners don't have to. A few hours before his death, Jesus Christ was in a garden and he prayed to God, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that to go to the cross was to go to the place where that cup of God's wrath would be poured upon him. He did not resist his father's will. He submitted to his father's will to save his people. The lamb was slain, but now he stands, having taken our punishment upon himself. Truly on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, but satisfied only for those who trust in the Lamb. And so if you are to avoid that cup of God's wrath, dear friend, repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can escape that torment that will be hell. The final judgment will bring deserved worship for God. It will bring eternal torment for God's enemies. Thirdly and finally, it will bring Eternal rest and reward for God's people. Eternal rest and reward for God's people. Look at Revelation 14 verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This again ties in with what we saw in chapter 13. Chapter 13 having described the, the, the power and the impact of the beast upon the saints Chapter 13, verse 10 says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And likewise, here in chapter 12, we have a call for endurance. One writer actually says that uh, the ethic most often called for in Revelation, the, the moral choice most often demanded of believers in Revelation, is endurance. Endurance. Considering everything that Christians will have to face before the return of Jesus... We're going to need to persevere. We're going to need to endure. 
But chapter 14 gives us the motivation to endure. If chapter 13 was, in a sense, the negative, it was all the the bad stuff that we're going to have to put up with, that we're going to have to endure, chapter 14, in a sense, is the positive. It's the, the end result of what our endurance will be, namely the judgment of sin and the eternal reward of the saints. Look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. The Holy Spirit very rarely is, is quoted or speaks in Revelation, only here and once more before the end in chapter 22. And I would suggest that the reason that the, 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 we're drawn to the Spirit here, drawn to the words of the Spirit, this is simply confirmation. Again, it's emphasizing to us, it's putting in bold print that there is blessing for those who die in the Lord or who belong to the Lord. Here's why we should endure, friends. There will be blessing for us. We will see our enemies judged. We will finally go to our rest. Again, what do those families say who leave the courtroom? Today, we can have peace. Justice has been done. Now, sometimes, perhaps even oftentimes, they don't say that. Because they don't believe that the guilty party has been justly punished. Maybe they think the judge got it wrong or went too easy on them. Maybe they think no amount of prison will make up for whatever it is that this person has done. Sometimes people leave the courtroom feeling as though justice has been denied. Friends, no one will be left feeling like that when Jesus the judge appears. We will see our enemies judged. Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that the saints are to judge the world? What he means is that we will be right there by the side of the Lamb, vindicated by the Lamb, praising the Lamb for the judgments that he brings, agreeing with the Lamb, celebrating the fact that Babylon has fallen and the beast is slain and that we have rest. That's what Jesus promised us, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Fully and finally, friends, that the judgment at the end will bring rest for the saints. Rest from persecution. Rest from temptation. Rest from our own internal daily struggles with sin. Rest from illness. Rest from weakness. Rest from pain of any kind. Notice, by the way, the deliberate contrast between those who follow the lamb and those who follow the beast. Verse 11, those who follow the beast have no rest, day or night. Why? Because they are in hell, experiencing that torment that we thought about earlier. Hell, friends, will be a restless place. And you know, increasingly this world seems a restless place. People are so anxious. People are so on edge. Some of you have told me recently, you're seeing this. People are more impatient. They, they lose their temper more quickly. They're stressed out more easily. Doctors and nurses see it. Teachers see it. Businessmen see it. Why? Well, we can look at the economy and 
the war in Ukraine and public service is a mess. But friends, beneath all of that, it's because there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't have rest because they don't have Christ. If they're restless now, imagine what it will be like for them in eternity. By contrast, those who know and follow Jesus, who fear God and give him the glory and worship his name, we're headed for rest. It doesn't mean that we will just put our feet up and not do anything. Some of you are very pleased to hear that. The idea of just putting your feet up for eternity doesn't sound very heavenly. That's not what it means. It means we have rest from the pressures and the persecutors and the tempters and the beast. The final judgment will give us rest. But amazingly, not only will we have rest, we will have reward. Verse 13 says, their deeds follow them. The implication being, their deeds will be recognized. The things that believers have done on the earth will be recognized and remembered in glory. Notice, friends, it doesn't say their deeds save them, but their deeds follow them. Our deeds are not what will get us into heaven. Only faith in Christ will do that. But our deeds will nonetheless follow us there. That's incredible. The only reason that we're able to do good deeds in the name of Jesus Christ is because God has saved us in the first place. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that uh, we're saved for good works prepared in advance for those who follow him. In other words, God has already planned in eternity the things that we are to do once we become Christians. It's all of God that we're able to serve him at all. And yet in eternity we'll be rewarded for those things. It's incredible, incredible grace from God that he would reward us for simply doing what we should have been doing all along. But nonetheless, friends, take encouragement from that. Don't think that no one sees your parenting of your covenant children on those really difficult days. Don't think that no one sees your faithful attendance at worship week by week. Don't think that no one sees you pouring even a cup of water, as Christ said, for the sake of the gospel. Your works will follow you into glory where you will be rewarded and where you will have rest. And so, friends, the judgment of God is good news. It's good news for God who will finally get the recognition he deserves from all people. It's good news for those who die in the Lord or who are waiting patiently for his return because we will get the rest that we long for and the vindication we have suffered for. But friends, remember the words of verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And in a sense, friends, there's the very reason why we carried out covenant renewal today. Today we have recommitted ourselves to the commandments of God and faith in Jesus, as verse 12 says. We've publicly declared in this generation where there is no fear of God before them, who are drinking from Babylon's cup, that we drink instead from the cup of salvation given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are committed to him And by his grace we will endure until we see him face to face and enter into that rest and reward that he has promised. 
So what's waiting for you, dear friend, at the final judgment? Will it be eternal torment? Or will it be eternal rest? Amen.